this cup ago for August 4th, 2023. <laughs> yeah, I glanced at the date there. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in 15 minutes per week. Returning, I'm your host, Shai Nechmad. And I'm Jonathan Hall. It's good to have you back, man. I missed y'all. How are y'all doing? Did Adelina treat you nice? She was as nice as you could ever ask for. Adelina, you were absolutely awesome. I listened to the podcast while waiting for my flight back. I was on a work trip. Uh, I almost missed the plane. I was so engrossed. Luckily, I have this fear of airports. I get there like four hours early. So I could listen to the episode like eight times and still make it. (laughs) All right. So let's jump into it. What's happening this week? We've got a ton of things going on. A bunch of official news this week. We'll start with the quick one. Go 1.21 Release Candidate 4 is out. So if you're one of those playing with the Bleeding Edge stuff, be sure to update to RC4. We mentioned the RCs uh, before, and I think when you get to the fourth iteration, it really makes sense. Maybe even just as an exercise in your Go guild, or if you're part of a backend team to try and upgrade. It's a fun exercise to see what's going on. Also, there are still security releases for 120 and 119. There were minor point releases, 1.20.7 and 1.19.12, which include an interesting security fix. Usually we don't dive into those, but this one's kind of fun. Uh, Jonathan, do you know what side channel attacks are? That's what my kids do to me when I'm trying to eat breakfast. (laughs) So usually when you think about trying to attack a server, trying to hack into something, you think about the direct responses you get. If you yeah. what information is leaked from specific types of errors, or perhaps if you send a malformed packet, what kind of information can you leak in return? That's through the main channel. But there are side channels as well. There's some crazy research. If you put a phone next to a computer, you can figure out the TLS keys by the vibrations of the desk. That's a side channel, right? How fast the fans is work are working what kind of sounds, like hyper-pitched sounds the CPU is making. And one of the most famous uh, side channel attacks is time. If the server, for, let's do, take the most trivial example, processes your password letter by letter, then it's sort of like trying to hack a padlock, right? Every letter you get correct, you get more ticks from the server, and the time to get the error is longer. Mm-hmm. So this is similar. There's a very different time-verifying signature CPU if you have a really long RSA key. So they fix that. I think this is more theoretical than anything else. In, in the notes, they mentioned that there are only three test certificates that are not actively deployed that actually are relevant for this feature, but uh, still worth making it more secure and also a really fun rabbit hole to jump into if you're into cybersecurity. Just a warning, it's very deep. Yeah. But anyway, even if you don't care about side the channel attacks at all, go upgrade your uh, Go versions to the latest minor ones because they're a bit more secure. Indeed. There are a few more security patches, right? Yes, indeed. We mentioned that these had been pre-announced last week, but we didn't know what they were. Now we do. Golang.org slash x slash net and net HTML, respectively, uh, have fixes related to cross-site scripting attacks, some improperly escaped stuff, details in the show notes. And then golang.org slash x slash image and image tiff both had some DOS potential that could lead to excessive CPU or memory consumption. So those have been fixed. So be sure to upgrade those uh, if you're using those. And of course, check the show notes for all the details. We're not going to dive into that uh, on the show. I am feeling safe and secure and calm already. Just uh, wrapped in a blanket of all these security fixes. Well, I'm glad you feel that way because it's about time to get vulnerable. Oh, no. With the Go developer survey. Got to spill your guts out and tell everybody how you use Go. <laughs> Top 10 segues I hate about Kappa Go. Maybe that should be your next video. 
I should watch less Linus tech tips and, and uh, his segues. We should have Linus on the show, do you know, if he there, there programs in Go? He will after he comes on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I did the dev survey. You should do it, too. You have about a week left to do it. We should have mentioned it last week, but we totally forgot. We had a full show. But yeah, go fill out the dev survey link, of course, in the show notes. Or you can find it at the uh, go.dev slash blog. Again, this is something I really recommend you do in, with your backend team or Golang Guild or like as a group. It's a really fun activity because you actually discuss the questions and think about them a little bit. And it's a really well-structured survey, like always. The, I don't know who's working on the Go uh, team on the surveys, but they're doing a really, really good job. Not too long. Questions are very precise. And yeah, there was one question on there that, that kind of confused me. It was asking about what sort of features do you look for in, in uh, new templates for new projects? And then very quickly later, they announced Gone W. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> Gone W. Go new, sorry. You have two <laughs> versions. You have Gone W, that's the Unicode version, and Gone A, that's the ASCII version. <laughs> for the very little percent of the audience that uh, got that joke, I'm really sorry you had to work with the Win API. <laughs> Anyways, uh, there's Go New. Uh, there are templates, and I have opinions. Do you? Are they good or bad? They're mixed. So oh. um, Go New is a tool you can install, and I assume if it goes well, it will just become part of the Go tool chain sometime in the future. But you can already install it now. They're basically experimenting with project templates. Now, project templates is a thing that I was specifically interested in in my last company. So I'll give a bit of background. Mm-hmm. My previous company, I was a VP R&D and I was the first employee. And uh, f- what I wanted to set up is a really good developer experience and like, you know, solid engineering ground. So I set up templates for like all our libraries, all our microservices. I did it using Cookie Cutter, which I guess is what this project is mostly based on. Cookie Cutter, if you don't know, is a project templating uh, CLI written in Python that uses like Jinja templating. And I set it up in Python, but for all languages in Go and in Python and in JavaScript, like TypeScript and in Scala, like we for every language in our stack, we had a cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. And it was easy for us to manage it because we were running like in a monorepo and we could get all the things correct the first time. The build pipeline was the same. The testing pipeline was the same. The linting pipeline was the same. Uh, the, the end deliverable, if, if it was an app, it was a Docker image and we pushed it to our own repository. We had our own thing. And because we had team standards, it was really good. The approach Go New is taking is sort of similar to Cookie Cutter, where you can point at the template, tell it Go New without a space. Go New. <laughs> the template URL and your basically mod file name, like example.com.myserver. And they have two templates to get us started, command line tool template and an HTTP server template. I think that's a really, really good starting point because that covers... of Go software, probably, either a CLI tool or an HTTP server. And there's also a really very easy way to start writing your own template. It's basically write your own model. And there are also examples in the Google Cloud and service weave your teams. Like, there are actually good examples. However, setting it up just for Go means that for any R&D team from a certain size, this is going to be annoying to add to your stack. Mm-hmm. Other than a cookie cutter, there are also options. Uh, if you use Backstage, for example, you can use uh, or any software catalog uh, that's similar to Backstage, you can start a new template for there. So you have options there. Those options are us- usually based on cookie cutter. And GoNew is not going to eat that market segment because it's just for Go. 
So for companies that are 100% go across the stack or that don't care about doing templates for their, like, let's say, front-end teams, this is a really, really good option. For companies that have mixed stacks, probably better than having nothing, but it's probably worse than having cookie cutter at this point. Okay. Uh, so those are my opinions. We actually played around with it before the show. It's super easy to get started. And I have just one last gripe. Okay. Can you open the blog post? Uh, y'all can do this exercise at home as well. Go.dev slash blog slash go new. Gone W, yeah. Gone w. <laughs> <laughs> so you open this blog post, right? You see some paragraphs of intro and your, my, your eye immediately goes to the line of code, right? Yeah, get started. And what do you want to do? Go install, blah, blah, blah. Do you want to copy this line and paste it, right? Yeah. I'd and then it. what happens? I don't know. Let's find out. Go downloading, go blah, blah, blah. So no, you didn't copy the line, right? You copied it starting the word go because they have this oh. dollar sign at yeah. the front that makes it impossible to copy. Why? Jonathan, please tell me why they do this. So, I mean, I can tell you why they do it. It's to make it obvious that this is a shell command and not a uh, code to copy and paste into a text editor. But it should be done in CSS mm-hmm. so that when you copy and paste it, you know, it should be a little CSS decorator at the beginning. I'm spoken like a true CSS guru right here who's never been able to censor a div in his life. <laughs> Please remove the dollar sign from the copyable content. I want to be able to copy the commands without reaching for my mouse. Please. Go team. Please. How about a... I'll write a proposal. I'm not even uh, joking. So anyway, go new. It's cool. Go play around with it. Uh, if you have Go uh, microservices in your company, you definitely should check this out. And we will improve... The documentation, one way or another. Maybe I'll develop a Chrome extension that like makes the dollar sign unclickable. Yeah. And yeah, that's it for Go New. Or just write a new shell that ignores dollar signs at the beginning of the command line. That's the easy solution here. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so last week we talked a lot about books. Um, and so on the topic of books, Bill Kennedy of Arden Labs is looking for authors of Go books. If you have written a Go book or you know somebody who's written a Go book, he wants to hear from you. Email him at bill at ardenlabs.com. Why does he want to hear from you? He hasn't told me exactly, but he's preparing something for GopherCon. Mm. I think he's going to do a big shout out of some sort to all you Go authors out there. So if that describes you or somebody you know, send him an email. Let him know who you are. And on the same topic, if you have a Go book coming out or recently come out, let us know. We'd love to talk about it on the show, too, because new books are news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What Go book are you reading right now? I am reading Shipping Go. Uh, one that we talked about on the show last week. How's it shaping out? Uh, <laughs> that one was rough even for me. <laughs> I like it so far. I'll save the full commentary until it's done. I do intend to write a full review of it. I just read a, not a Go book, but a change management book in organizations. And then every time I like go back to the podcast, it kind of reminds me that I actually like programming in Go. I see all the books you and Adelina mentioned last week, and I'm like a bit jealous. <laughs> so I need a good recommendation for my next one. Shipping Goes might be my next book. Cool. So we're done with the urgent news. Yeah. But there's a proposal we wanted to mention about the time package that uh, Russ put up about two weeks ago. The question is, do we want to guarantee that all future versions of Go will stop requiring timer or ticker.stop to prompt the garbage collector? This is sort of a gray area. Usually Go developers don't want to think about their garbage collector. That's why it's the language is not like super focused on memory management, right? It's focused on shipping software. Yeah. These proposals are always interesting to me because they show the places where reality creeps into, you know, the ideal world where you don't have to think about the garbage collector. Well, actually, sometimes you do. 
and I would recommend reading it. It sounds like it's one of those proposals where uh, Russ put it on, already implemented it. Nobody really understands it other than him and why it's needed. Just got upvotes from, you know, a bunch of fans. Uh, everybody on the discourse agrees. It's a really nice proposal overall, and I think it, it will get accepted. I would be really surprised if it, uh, if it won't. I think it's an interesting read if you're into uh, garbage collection and trying to optimize Go really deeply. Maybe if you liked memory arenas in the latest release and if you play around with that, this proposal might be relevant for you to read and input your opinion. So I think it's important to take a step back and do a short history lesson if you really want to understand this this proposal. Back to a happier time of October 7, 2014, almost 10 years ago, when issue number 8898 came out, which was about doing garbage collection on this stuff in the first place. So I don't know how many people listening have avoided time.ticker like I have, because of this garbage collection issue. Basically, time.ticker kind of consumes memory forever after you call it because of this. Russ finally fixed that after promising to back in 2016, said he would get it done for Go 1.7. Well, it's finally done for 1.21 or maybe 22. I'm not sure if it made the 121 cut. So it's been fixed, which is nice. So I can start using time.ticker without guilt anymore. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so the specific proposal that's on the table now is whether we should promise that this will always be true. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's difficult when you play around with, um, you know, resource acquisition in really long running operations. But I would love it if my Go programs would run without crashing forever. I know they all run on Kubernetes and that Kubernetes runs on a virtual server. And it's like 7,000 layers between the my program and the actual metal it's running on. But I would appreciate if it wouldn't crash, even though I have these 7,000 layers to restart it if and when it crashed. So, you know, anything that can guarantee just stuff continuing to work, you know, I, I'm really happy when I have uh, servers that I celebrate uptime birthdays you know so if i can celebrate more uptime birthdays that's good and i don't think that it should be super major for honestly anyone i think maybe like there are special cases for stuff like tiny go and whatever it's not super complicated but they will have to do it for themselves yeah so there are interesting edge cases here but i would love to see it happen yeah i think it needs to happen too all right and one last thing we want to mention is a blog post from around the community that actually i found but I asked uh, John to tell us about, so he'll learn about it. We should have done this on our episode when we talked about the uh, the new zero mm-hmm. keyword, since it's about zero allocation. That would have been perfect theme. I've had a zero theme show. Anyway, the blog post is called Zero Allocation Metrics with OpenTelemetry Go. And you know the, the preamble kind of summarizes it. So I'm just going to read the first paragraph of the blog post. In the past, Istio has suffered from performance issues from OpenCensus which was used for metrics reporting. At extremes, we saw up to 20% of CPU spent just on incrementing various metrics. This was mitigated to some extent by some capabilities. Uh, At best, we got it down to around 600 nanoseconds and three allocations per metric update. Well, now they've done better. Uh, And this blog post talks about how to do zero allocation metrics, uh, which is, I think, pretty cool, especially if you have a lot of telemetry in your application. And who doesn't? Or at least who doesn't want to? Maybe you aren't there yet, but you want to get there, I'm sure. So yeah, check out this blog post. It's it's a really quick read. Um, I mean, it's the blog post itself is like two minutes. I could read the whole thing here faster than I'm commenting about it, probably. Yeah, yeah. the thing I, I really liked about it, it's so fast and to the point, is it shows you that it really doesn't take a lot to to test. Like the tooling in Go is just so good. Mm-hmm. doesn't take a lot to test and also doesn't take a lot to explain yep. how to get to zero allocation. I also just want to shout out the blog itself, not the post, but just Howard John's blog. Mm-hmm. Really good. Really, really good. A ton of interesting things. That he released even more um, 
blog posts since then. For example, go Mac prox and go mem limit in Kubernetes, uh, saying no in open source, which I really, really, really liked. If you're an open source maintainer, you can probably really relate to that. And the reason I actually got into his blog is tracing shell scripts with open telemetry. We have in my current place a ton of like shell scripting for developers, but we don't really know how much of of the tooling is being used and having uh you know open telemetry in a shell script i mean that's pretty good you know what i mean it's pretty slick yeah so check out uh, his blog we definitely recommend it blog.howardjohn.info or check the link in the show notes all right that wraps it up for this week stick around for an interview about benthos what's benthos i think it's benthos i don't know we were having really a ton of issues with pronunciation. This, yeah. I um, also, I actually, I take offense with your istio pronunciation. Oh, is it istio? I don't know. I think. So. Anyways, it doesn't matter. This is not a, like an audio-based program where pronunciation no. is important or anything no. like that. Uh, stick around for a super interesting interview with two of the maintainers of uh, Benthos. And hear me mispronounce one of their names. Yes, of course. <laughs> and thanks a lot for listening. We'll check you all out next week. Cheers. Welcome to our exciting ad break. Exciting. Usually we try to keep it kind of chill, but this time, hold on to your headphones. (laughs) We don't really have an ad per se, but we wanted to share some statistics and information with you. Last month, July, was was a record-setting month for Cup of Go. We had 4,273 downloads of the podcast in the month of July, which far exceeds our previous record of just under 3,000 the month before, which was even a record-breaking record then. The show is on an upward trend. We're excited about that. Thanks for sharing, and please keep sharing this podcast with your friends, your colleagues, your students, your dog, whoever might be interested in Go. And has a Spotify subscription or iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, leave a review too at whatever those places that were just mentioned. Mm-hmm. We're really excited about these stats. I'm One stat that I'm really excited about is the fact that our show has been downloaded in over 100 countries. So I'm wondering how much of that is because of just people having their VPN on all the time or people actually living in various different places. But I was really excited to see this country list on, on our analytics. There are a few there that I didn't expect. What uh, country surprised you the most? Uh, so we have listeners in Cuba. Ooh. I suppose that makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't Cubans uh, write Go code? But it's a small country, and it's one, I guess as an American, I am culturally trained to ignore the country, which is stupid. I actually went to Cuba, and I had a great time there, but uh, don't tell my government that. <laughs> there, are, uh, there are a few countries that I was uh, kind of surprised by, because I wouldn't be able to set foot in them, uh, like Bahrain, Kuwait, uh, Libya. I'm really just happy to see that, right? Uh, I'm also happy to see Belarus. I think I know who these people might be, because I just joined the Orca Security, and some of our developers write Go, and some some of them live in Belarus. Uh-huh. Uh, Alex Dima, if this is you, <laughs> that's cool. I don't know. So it, there are honestly some countries here that for me only exist in trivia sense, you know, like uh, Guatemala, Cambodia, uh, Qatar. That's really cool. Pakistan, Saudi Arabia. Big shout out to Guatemala, by the way. If you're in Guatemala listening, my wife's from Guatemala. So big uh-huh. shout out to you guys. Uh, if you're from Egypt and you're listening, Hey, we're neighbors. Unfortunately, we can't go over the border to meet each other. But hey, Lebanon, the same. (laughs) So it's really cool. I was really surprised to see how low Israel is on the list. I was really expecting it to be like number two. But there are more people in Germany, UK, Sweden, Canada and Australia listening to Capo Go than Israel. And of course, United States tops the the charts. Yeah, but if you break it down by state, you get a little bit more realistic uh, 
You can break it down by state. All right, we'll nerd out over the numbers later. But the main (laughs) thing is, thank you all, uh, the Global Go audience, for listening to our show and sharing about it. And if you want to support the show, uh, you can share it, as we said. You can rate it, as we said. And you can also do what more people than I expected did recently and uh, grab some merch. We have really, really nice uh, coffee mugs. Uh, We have some Cup of Go stickers that come in a transparent or white background. They look really, really nice on the laptop. They also look really, really nice on a bike helmet and on a bike basket. I know because my child grabbed a bunch of the ones I intended to give out and just put them on my bike. But I'm, I'm happy about it. And also a wireless charger. You can like put your phone on and it has Brewster. Obviously, all the merch features Brewster, our mascot. So you can go check it out. Um, and some people asked about how it works and whatever. So I just wanted to give you a brief view into that. We don't have like a huge stock of these. Uh, We ship them one by one. Whenever you request for it, I have to go into the site and like approve it. Uh, Most of the times you buy it, we we make a profit. Not always. If the shipping costs are are too much, we we lose money on the transaction. And we eat that. No problem. We're a a lot happier to have people like celebrating the show and and enjoying a cool new thing. Uh, This is not revenue making thing for us, but it does help support. Most of the shipments are pretty cheap and it's, you know, they make it on the spot. So you don't have to worry about huge environmental impacts or anything like that. Uh, And also recently I went through our uh, shipping companies and production companies and only approved like green ones. So you can even feel a little bit better about that. Nice. And it's really high quality. My cup went through like... 15 dishwasher cycles already or something like that not showing any wear and tear so go grab some merch do it yes give us your money please and your lessons uh stick around we have a super fun interview with the benthos maintainers even if you're not into stream processing you should probably stick around they were really great guys it was a fun interview yeah all right have a listen bye bye so jonathan did you see the text i sent you no. I sent it to this your Kafka topic. I wanted you to transform it. Let me go debug that. Hang on a second. Wait, why? It should be super easy. Haven't you heard of Benthos? No, what's that? Oh, hi, Mihai. Hi, Ash. You want to help hi. John here? Sorry, hey. I was going to go vomit. <laughs> that was all rough. Well, welcome, uh, Mihai and Ash, to the show. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into it? Hello. Uh, I'm going to go first. Sorry, Mihai. Uh, my name is Ashley Jeffs. Um, you'll probably, if you already know of me, you'll probably know me as Jeff Ale on most uh, internet spaces. And uh, I'm a person with quite a few open source projects, uh, in, especially in the Go space. Uh, but the one that I'm mostly focused on and currently earning a living from is the Benthos stream processor. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for stumping over me, Jeff. <laughs> I'm Mihai and uh, I work as a principal software engineer for Optum. And I'm also an open source contributor. I bumped into Bentos a few years ago and I started contributing and I kept at it and I'm really enjoying that. So I uh, want to do more. And uh, yeah, you'll always find me online. I'm on various platforms, kind of all over the place and trying to help people use Bentos and showing them what uh, what they need to do to get started. That's me. Pretty cool. So I want to just kick off this interview with the, the obvious question for most people, I think, at least for me, and I'm assuming... That means most people, because if I don't know about something, 
most people don't know about it, right? What is Benthos? So I, ah, it's really hard to say. So it's it's a stream processing tool. So if okay. you don't know anything about stream processing immediately, you're not going to get it. But the, the tagline I usually go with when I'm trying to describe it is it fancy stream processing made operationally mundane. So the idea is that as a tool, it's crazy easy for people to deploy it and use it. But the feature set that it essentially gives you is the ability to do lots of complicated stream processing stuff. And there's obviously a lot of complexity to solve uh, in order for it to be approachable in a, in a sort of operationally safe way. The, the way that I usually say is we do lots of cool things, but we do it statelessly so that when you deploy the service, you don't really have to worry about what it's doing at any given time because the fact that it's stateless means you can be pretty gnarly with how you deploy it and you can treat it very badly and it won't it won't mess you up. I have to admit that um, when I started learning more about Benthos uh, for this interview, which is the whole reason Jonathan and I are doing this show, honestly, is just to stay on top of what's going on in Go. I had a super frustrating actual like text message chain uh, with one of my previous employees at my previous company because we did a ton of data work like really big data and a ton of stream processing. And we try to like fetch all changes in real time. We tried, we succeeded fetching uh, all changes in real time from all your SaaS applications and shoving them into a DB. And we wrote the thing and we were really proud of it. It was called uh, Kafka to Postgres Async. And then it was sort of generalized and we added some more uh, processors in the middle. And then we even came up with some configuration. Live. We were like super happy. And then I saw your project like, God damn it. <laughs> it's just like, they wrote it already. Why didn't I hear about it? So if your company has someone who's like angrily typing at the computer, they have some Kafka stickers on their laptop, or maybe they're muttering about like, uh, you know, dead letter cues and you're, you're worried and you don't want to get near them, have them listen to this interview, teach them Benthos. It's going to make their lives so much better. They're not going to make the mistake I made. So yeah, I, I was really happy to now know about it because I know if I have another Go stream uh, processing project, I'll have to uh, jump on the Benthos uh, wagon. I mean, it was, it's like a really common conversation I have with people where it turns out that, you know, they basically rewrote the same thing over and over again. And it essentially overlaps with what Benthos is. I mean, that's that's how I started the project is we I was at an organization where we had a lot of stream processing problems and we were just reinventing the wheel over and over again. And the annoying thing from my perspective is I got to a point where I was quite comfortable with the idea of delivery guarantees and how to make um, resilient stream processing pipelines. But we had all these services that, you know, we, we had all these weak links and uh, leaky pipelines and places where we weren't doing the right thing. And it was annoying because it's like if we just had this one tool that was configuration based, you only have to solve these problems once. But yeah, it's not uh, it's not unheard of for people to get a bit frustrated with the projects. It's like, damn, you, what a waste of time my whole career. <laughs> So looking at the website, it looks like Benthos consumes a, a YAML file. And based on that, it does its magic. Is that fair or is it more than that? Basically, yes. It's a configuration format that's it's declarative. So you essentially describe where your data is coming from and where you want it to go to. And that includes you know, a whole range of brokering patterns and things like um, declaring how you want to behave around retries and stuff like that. And the idea is that by default, if you've got a tiny config that's just read from NAS right to Kafka, then it's going to essentially be as safe as it possibly can be with those settings. So you have back pressure that's just going to stall the application if, if things go wrong and, you know, it never drops data. It always 
always tries its best to preserve data and deliver it somewhere and, and all those things. But then you can you kind of opt in with the config and expand it to do other things like dead letter queues and filter data under certain circumstances. But right now it's just a YAML file or multiple. You can break your configs out into separate ones. That's not always going to be the case. We actually export a queue spec. So you can you can use queue to generate your YAML, but then you know we're also ideally in the future we're going to have other options than just YAML. So not to put you on the spot, but where were you when I suggested YAML to the standard library? And Russ was like, <laughs> oh, that's not important. Couldn't you come and back me up? Yeah, nah, it's just not important. I mean, I, I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree with their logic. We need some sort of like WWF Smackdown sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a real shame if they did put it in because then people would have to stop whinging about it. I think YAML's great because, you know, obviously I'm using it. So I have to say that. But I'm kind of eager to ditch it. As soon as something comes along that's not also trash, then, you know, I think my gripe with YAML is basically the same as most people, which is it's just too, it's too big as a spec that it just doesn't fit well. It doesn't fit in people's heads like JSON does. But at the same time, I don't want to have to write configs in JSON. I don't want to have to write configs. I mean, I, I did consider Tomal for a while and it's just as annoying, especially with like nested structures. People hate that as well. Everything gets hate. So I don't know. I don't know why we haven't managed to solve this. But what I want is I just want YAML, but smaller. So maybe they could do that. Maybe the Go team could be a bit brave and they could they could merge in like a, a not YAML, YAML. Just YAM. It also has a super yeah, awesome logo because the YAM is already Unicode uh, character. <laughs> we'll just force it on people. By the way, talking about awesome logos, Bethos, oh, I just got it because it's a blob, right? Is that? <laughs> yeah, blobfish. Because I didn't say it in English like out loud until now. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a very cool mascot, and not as cool as Brewster. Mm, debatable. Does it have a name? So I've purposefully never given it a name. It's just the Benthos Blobfish. Okay. Because I kind of feel like the whole purpose of it is to just be really dumb yeah. and just a bit silly, and therefore to not give it a name is kind of it's funny to me to put all this effort into this silly, goofy mascot that people love, mm-hmm. and then not bother to give it a name. Got it. So yeah, it's very vague. Do you have swag? Oh yeah, yeah. So we got okay. um, we got all kinds of swag. There's, there's actually uh, you can see some on the camera, uh, which you're denying to your audience. I'll take a screenshot. Oh, you got some on your jacket there. Yeah, we got loads. So we got stickers. Where do I um, go to see it? I don't see like a store or. Uh, uh, there is actually this. This kind of a store. My wife is trying to milk the project because she's a graphic designer. She's she's made a bunch of sticker concepts on. Uh, I think on Redbubble, but um, you can't buy them directly, and that's uh, just because I'm lazy. Okay. I don't want to set anything like that up. But there's so we've got enamel pins uh, for contributors and sponsors. Uh, we've got loads of stickers that I take to events every now and then. One fan uh, has provided me with a crochet blobfish. Whoa, that's awesome! Yeah, but this is just a one-off. Yeah. I don't think they're intending to um, produce that in mass. So unfortunately, people won't be able to get that. You have to make it yourself. <laughs> Michael, is that uh, one of those pins that I see on your hoodie? It's a one of a kind. Well, no, I mean, the core contributors get uh, one of this, and now the other people have to like wait in line because uh, unless they contribute code. Okay, I'm going to contribute code now just to get some swag. That's pretty cool. Not everybody who contributes gets it. Oh, what, what do I have to do? You get in the, there's a queue. They set up a Kafka queue. Yeah, I'm going to leave that, that open. I'm not going to answer that because okay. you right. get more out of people. <laughs> Got it. You don't want to see how far the carrot is. Would you trade swag if we sent you some Brewster cups? Would you send me a uh, something? Why don't you send me the swag and then, and then I'll then figure we'll out how many stickers it's worth? <laughs> Good answer. All right, we're gonna send it at the same time. I'm I'm, I'm with my hand over the shift button. Three, 
All right. <laughs> no, you, have, you have to make your contributions really boring, like, you know, just the most boring thing you can imagine, and then he'll be super happy. Yeah, that's the thing as well. We don't take fun contributions, and you have to be miserable when you do it as well. well that's uh, easy we don't like people who enjoy their pull requests. So I started with adding linting. I added Golang CI lint to Bentos, and Ash was like, oh my God, somebody's doing that. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's something really meditative about that. Like every new project, Go project I go into, I try to find one of those, like, you know, for example, Jonathan last week talked about dead code. So just running dead code, deleting all the, feels like combing through the Zen garden of the source code. You're not actually helping. You're not actually making value in, the, in that immediate pull request, but it feels really good. Everybody feels nicer when they walk around the code. You're removing dev friction, which we appreciate. We like our red pull requests. Lots oh, of red those. is good. So you mentioned that Benthos is dull. It takes It's easy to deploy. It takes a simple YAML file. Uh, but I want to take the second approach of it and just gawk for a second and geek out about the number of super awesome features you all have. So... Let's start with the super basics. I want to I wanna connect it. So we threw the word Kafka. What else can I connect it to or from? Oh, God, this is a massive list. So the, uh, the, the big players are obviously Nats. We're very much in the Go ecosystem, so we love our Nats. Uh, there's uh, RabbitMQ. I mean, there's all, there's all the major AWS Q systems as well, and then a bunch of other cloud Q systems. Databases, you can just query databases. The one, the one thing that we don't do in the data engineering space is mess around with CDC. Um, I kind of leave that to the other players, at least for now. I mean, you can read data from, from files, HTTP endpoints. We have support for pagination for some APIs, uh, but we kind of leave that to users. Uh, we kind of give you very generic um, tool sets for querying endpoints and things and deciding how you're going to continue with that. And there's there's just a bunch of other junk that we put in there. I mean, there's some, there's like a Twitter input, there's Discord, there's stuff like that. So I mean, we have like all the major big players in the streaming space, but then we also add in goofy stuff. There's also a lot of connectors that you would kind of associate with the logging industry. We're not 100% on board with being a, a kind of logging tool traditionally uh, we're more into stream processing but we've added a bunch of stuff in just because uh, just because it's there and then for like processes and stuff you, you can integrate with all kinds of caches databases http endpoints for enrichments and stuff like that like the, the idea is that you can connect with basically anything and there's different paradigms for different things so you can do like streaming inputs batch inputs and then you can plug into caches and things to, to modify the cache or query the cache and um, use it to enrich your payloads and all of these things are kind of broken down into small components within benthos where you've got like inputs but then you've also got processes to enact on the data and then processes can be composed so you can have a processor that does a bunch of other processes on the data and then merges it back into the original message without necessarily replacing its content so you can do clever things with um, with your data transformations. Adding in new components is like the easy bit. So I don't really, I don't traditionally consider that to be like the clever stuff that it does. The, the cleverness is the fact the way that we've broken down these connectors as a concept within the project is really open-ended it's very simple um at the surface level but then the more advanced your use case gets the more these components kind of play into what you're trying to do by you just being able to okay well i've got an output but now i want to add another output which transforms the data before it gets delivered and if that doesn't work i want to fall back on this other output that does all this other clever stuff and the config just kind of slowly grows with your use case rather than you just having to bin the tool and, and move on to something else as soon as your stuff gets difficult so i mean the main way i would describe what it's doing in in terms of like its cleverness uh, its peak cleverness is the fact that it makes this stuff really simple from the user's perspective 
to compose. And as you're doing that, it's always wrapping all this functionality in a stateless and simple and secure way. So you don't have to worry about the implications of, okay, I've, I've just added this like cache query that's going to enrich the data. You don't have to worry about retries necessarily. You don't have to worry about what happens when things go wrong because it's already just going to do the right thing um, in terms of data retention and apply back pressure and logs and metrics and, and all that stuff. And one output I saw you recently worked on, I think maybe some of our listeners who work in more corporate uh, environments would be interested in a snowflake. I think mm -hmm. Miha, you did some work there, right? Yeah, I was actually ju just going to steal a standard there and uh, say that I added Snowflake support. I managed to sneak that in and it was as boring as he suggested. So, uh, <laughs> you know, like that's probably pretty popular at my work. Uh, people like to put a lot of stuff in Kafka and then they're like, well, now we want to get it somewhere and do stuff with it. So uh, Snowflake happened to be one of the popular destinations. And because Bento supports batching by default, there's a lot of easy ways to batch your messages. Uh, that's making it um, pretty straight for to just get your data efficiently to Snowflake or out of it. That's cool. I think uh, many it's sort of like a litmus test. Is this project really as silly as the logo <laughs> seems to say? Was it serious? <laughs> okay, it has Snowflake support. So they only behave like they're not actually suits, yeah. but they're they're wearing suits. On the inside, they're like <laughs> 80s sitting in a cubicle wearing suits. So if you go on the Snowflake website, you'll see that they offer Kafka Connect uh, as a service and they say, hey, you just use this Kafka connector and I'm like that's so complicated I've been trying to use it myself and I was struggling like it's Java it starts slowly there's all these parameters you have to set and I'm like I'm going to do it in Bentos and it's going to be easier for people and indeed it has proven uh, a bit easier to adopt it so, also does fewer things out of the box. It doesn't try to create a lot of resources in Snowflake. You have to do that yourself, and then you just run Bentos. Nice. I really wish I knew Bentos because that's literally the use case where we started developing our own thing. We're like, Kafka Connect? Ugh, it's a bit slow. Uh, it's annoying. It's hard to configure. The documentation looks sort of flimsy. All right, we'll just write something small and go. How hard can it be? <laughs> I would like to talk a little bit about the history of this project. Uh, Jeff, um, you started the project, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I um, I was working uh, at a company called Datasift, and this was like back in more than 10 years ago. And stream processing was very new. It wasn't really, you know, there were obviously people doing it in a bespoke way, but as like a, a general industry concept, it wasn't a major thing. Lots of people were talking about big data, and we were a company that had a whack load, I think it's the technical term, whack load, of social media data. They were basically reselling several fire hoses of social media data. And we had this massive platform of bespoke components that did a bunch of clever things with the stream as it was being processed. So we were doing enrichments and doing things like uh, you know, language detection, sentiment analysis, all that good stuff. And the idea is, you know, we, we're building these streaming components that are processing that data. And we have obviously requirements for super fast uh, processing. We want it to be nice and low latency so that people, you know, when somebody tweets, we want a person using this product to, to see that tweet as quickly as possible. And and everything was just custom built. So we did a lot of C++ and there was some PHP for the bits and some JVM for some others. We were using a bit of Kafka, but that was quite early days. I think it was like 0.7 um, at the time. So it was very early stages and we weren't particularly happy with it. So we used a lot of um, other streaming systems like Zero and Q, especially for the stuff that needs to be super fast, ultra fast, blazing fast nice. is what the kids say, I think. Web scale is another one, right? Yeah, it was just trash. It was just it, like, as in the components were great. I mean, it obviously ran really well, but 
to deploy it, you have to have this massive team of ops people having to, you know, kind of help these services hobble along. And every time they, they have a bit of a tumble, you know, you've got to get in there and do all these manual uh, things to, to recover the systems. And also just ma- maintaining the, the software was becoming a hassle because you're writing this bleeding, bleeding edge stuff in, in C++ and it just didn't feel great. And I was messing around with Go as our CTO was at the time. Uh, he kind of like encouraged me to, to do a bit of playing around with it at the company. So we were kind of doing toy code bases in, in Go. And then a couple of years after that, I decided, hey, OK, I'm going to take one of the central pieces of this massive stream processing architecture and see if I can replace it with Go. And, you know, we'll get a feel for what the performance implications are and how much simpler is the code base. And really what I was doing is seeing if our, in these C++ services, we basically reinvented channels in mm-hmm. Go using internal like improc zero and Q channels. So very, very common pattern in a lot of uh, projects if you want to get multi-threaded processing of a, of a continuous stream. But we're basically reinventing what Go now has in the language. So maybe I can just use that and it will make the code base a lot simpler. And things like back pressure will hopefully be a bit nicer to handle given it's a it's a first class concept in the language and yeah that was the exact case so i i built this thing as like a, a weekend project just as like a proof of concept just basically read from one queue system right to another and then have like a disk persistent buffer in between mm-hmm. really really simple bridge and that was good it worked um i liked it it was kind of like a little garden project like you know you tending to your garden and you just kind of enjoy um doing stuff with it but it's not like a serious thing and the company itself was not particularly interested in doing anything with that uh, which was fair enough you know you've already got a platform so i just carried on doing it as a side project and then eventually got to the point where this was like a compelling project for the company and that's when we started playing around with the idea of adopting it um so i got to work on it as part of my job and it just kind of grew from there very cool so looking at the contributor graph uh, which tells us about lines of code which everybody knows is the most important metric for any project um it looks like you started in 2015 on benthos proper and around 2017 18 is when it really kicked off and is that about accurate did you start to get adoption then or you just had more time to work on it at that point yeah basically so what happened is i almost kind of like dropped it for a while so i think in about 2016 i didn't really mess around with it that much i kind of had this like basis for the general way that components will work so like what does an input look like what does an output look like what a processor look like and how does a service kind of look architecturally and i kind of left that as like a pet project thing and every now and then i'll come back to it and add a little bit more and then just leave it i think at that point the company was maybe using it for one or two things but it wasn't like a major feature of the platform and we we, you know we went heavily invested in it it's just every now and then i'll get a bit of time to tweak it a bit but then what happened is we long story short got acquired and the company that acquired us had this massive need for essentially the platform but it was just taking ages to onboard people onto the platform itself this is like a a streaming infrastructure that does things like um filtering enrichments and a bunch of other kind of like niceties on top of a streaming pipeline. And what we decided to do instead of trying to onboard people onto that platform is we just said, hey, Ash has this tool that's open source and it basically does what you want, except you can run it yourself and it's pretty easy to run. So would you like to try that? And just loads of teams at this company, uh, this was Meltwater, I think I'm allowed to say, were 
happy to do that. So they, you know, they kind of like took this thing. Oh, it works really well. It does the filtering. It does the other bits that we wanted. And we're happy with that. So we're just going to carry on with it. And it's very easy to run. It's very easy to maintain. So, um, yep, we're, we're satisfied customers. You don't need to onboard us onto your platform anymore. As soon as that was established, boom, you know, Ash, can you do this? Ash, can you do that? And, you know, the, the adoption kind of grew very, very fast inside the company. And that's when I realized, okay, there maybe is something here because before then I just thought this was just some, some pet project I made for my very specific needs. And I like the way it works, but I wasn't convinced anybody else would really care. But as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, okay, it's worth me investing more time into this because this is clearly a common issue. And the solution I have is clearly something that developers are interested in. So it's worth maybe a few more evenings and weekends. But then because it was being adopted by lots of teams at this organization, I was also given a bit more time to work on it at the company. So it just once you get to that point, it's not necessarily that it reached a critical mass because it was still basically just me working on it alone, but it reached this point where in my brain, I'd reached that critical mass of there's enough reason for me to continue working on this thing and I enjoy working on it. So I'm just going to keep working on it. And then I was getting hints of people using it outside in, in their own uh, organizations. And that was that was enough for me, basically. Great. Well, that, I think that leads to, I think, my last question before we start to close up here. That is for you, Mihai. I'm curious how you became aware of the project and started contributing. Would you want to tell us that story briefly? Sure. So I was working at a company called Nitro, and uh, Karl Matthias, my team lead, he was like, hey, here's this Pentos thing. Maybe you can use it for something. I'm like, no, I don't know. We don't have any use case for it right now. And I kept it in my head. And then when I joined Optum, I saw it re-implemented about four or five times internally as kind of a small subset of Pentos. like, surely we can do something here. So I started kind of putting it in a small corner of the company and people really liked it and uh, it enabled me to start contributing to it. And I think one feature that hasn't been mentioned yet is Bloblang. It's kind of this embedded DSL that lets you wrangle all sorts of uh, structured data. So you, you, let's say you have a JSON that you want to modify in some way. Uh, you define a Bloblang transformation and that lets you really quickly like just do whatever you want with it. And it's kind of a kata thing for me, you know, like people come in and they're like, I have this JSON, I don't know how to transform it into this other thing. And then I, I give them like a one-liner Bloblang and they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> but if you don't like Bloblang, there's also a JavaScript processor so you can write your own JavaScript or Wasm or I don't know, Awk if you're into that. Or you can just get <laughs> lost. Or you can contribute uh, your own uh, stream processor language. Yeah, go build your own one. No, add to add to as a plugin. You know, I'm sure there are a ton of people who are convinced. I think if we find like 10 developers, but we look for them on Twitter, we'll get like, okay, obviously, obviously we need processors in Rust, Nim, Zig, Hair, Odin, <laughs> yeah. Next.js, like. There is a Wasm uh, processor, so people can mess around with that today if they wanted to, Ooh. but don't. Yeah. <laughs> is is Benthos strictly a, a standalone binary, or can it be embedded as a library in, a, in another project if you want? That's a good question. Have you been uh, going through the docs? Because, uh, yes, yeah, so there's, um, there's, there's various levels of... Uh, ability to to kind of script and run this thing so you, the obvious way is to grab the binary and point at a yaml config but if you wanted to you can also use the go api mm -hmm. to embed it in your project lots of people do that there's i mean there's lots of people kind of building businesses around it where they they use benthos as like the centerpiece to their project That's and they're cool. just kind of adding stuff on top yeah, the, the the way that it's kind of evolved over time is obviously I wanted to have a really nice plugin API so people can just very easily write their own components. Mm -hmm. 
And while I was doing that, I also wanted to make it easy to test your stuff. So the ability to just run Benthos programmatically was was like an obvious one. And then why not just go a little bit further and just make it like a first class thing so people can just run Benthos programmatically. I mean, you can you can always like run it as like a script. So if you want to point it at a file or, you know, some arbitrary dump of data and then wait for it to finish and then do something else, you can you can sort of embed that in your your own project. What plans do you have for the next, I don't know, three to six months? What, what does the future hold? We talked about the past. What What's coming next? Plans? Uh, yeah, so I think there is one, uh, <laughs> maybe. Um, it tends to change on a daily basis. But I think the problem with like an open source project is when you're running it, you have to be comfortable with lots of spinning plates. Mm-hmm. Because things don't just happen. You can't like you can't just expect somebody to open a pull request immediately on their own spare time and then merge it. And um, likewise, I can't expect myself to do that as well. So there, there's like lots of things going on. So there's um there's a project called Benthos Studio, which is a visual interface for building Benthos configs and also running them and uh, monitoring and, and things like that, which um, I'm building as like a separate entity. It's not part of the open source project. And that's maybe going to be a way of monetizing in the future, but we'll see. Maybe I'll open source it because I'll just get fed up. Um, and then in terms of the actual open source stuff, obviously we're, we're always adding new features. Um, there's always a need for new stuff and refactoring things. So there's there's still a lot of old code that uses old APIs internally. And um, there's been a lot of work redoing all of that. Um, and we're kind of getting to the point now where almost everything is on the newest, latest and greatest APIs. Um, making the documentation better is always a, a constant effort. There's already been a massive effort in the last couple of years to add new really cool stuff like the plugins APIs so for the next year or so probably we're just going to be looking at stabilizing everything and then getting ready to kind of do a clear out of all stuff that we don't like anymore tends to happen on those like year to year cycles where I'm adding in new bits but in terms of like a major refactor internally we're probably not going to have one of those for a little while it being an open source project I assume that you know if some such as your current awesome sponsors uh, which are worth a shout out thanks to all the heroes that sponsor Ventos. As it yes, says on your thank homepage. you, heroes. You know, if some like large company comes and says, hey, I really want to impact the roadmap in this direction, they can probably do that, right? Since the, the project is open source. I take issue bounties. So if people have a specific issue that they're really interested in, then um, they, can, they can sort of amplify it, I guess, mm. uh, is the correct term. I specifically have not found myself in a situation where somebody's pressuring me to to make any big architectural changes for commercial gain. I think I would actually probably shy away from doing that unless it was something that directly aligned with basically if something's already in the category of, well, I'm going to do it anyway at some point, so I might as well get paid for it, then everybody wins. But yeah, I haven't really found myself in a situation where I'm kind of being asked to steer in a particular direction, um, luckily, because obviously I love money. Mm-hmm. So uh, that would put me in, a, in an awkward spot. But yeah, I mean, it's really, there's lots of people who talk about kind of like monetizing open source. And the reality is you can't just do any one particular thing because sponsors are great, but they kind of come and go and they're a bit sporadic. And it's not something that you can kind of rely on necessarily. But then doing things like support also has its drawbacks. And then, you know, you could go down the venture route and you just raise a funding round and then you're on a crazy roller coaster. And it's not really about the open source necessarily anymore. 
what works for me is just kind of embracing the chaos and just every you know six months or something the way that I expect the next year to go is completely different and that that works for me because I hate making decisions especially ones that have big impacts on my life so if I can just carry on coasting then that's great that's awesome yeah, thank you sponsors and also uh, contributors I assume Michai like your specific contributions are tied to how you use uh, benthos at work as well right yeah that was one thing but then I kind of went with it and I saw community requests coming in and I'm like, oh, this person has a small feature I can add in my spare time. So I started doing that. And then, uh, you know, I kind of want to expand on that. Uh, there's some, there's a never ending to-do list that I keep internally. So I have, uh, I have the open source issues that you can see on the repo. There's about 300 something of them. And then I probably have the same number in my own personal watch list that I keep uh, yeah. my computer. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to start working on those one day. So there's yeah, a tomorrow. bunch of blog posts I want to add. There's a, there's a bunch of uh, new plugins I would like to add. There's, there's lots of neat picks that I would like to fix and so on. And, uh, you know, there's just never enough time for that kind of stuff. Let me piss you off. How about uh, XML input so you can take uh, podcast episodes as stream inputs? Somebody has requested SOAP as an input and output, and I'm like, I might actually do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Early 2000 calls. They want their protocols back. (laughs) (laughs) But we've got like a growing list of um, contributors who kind of, who initially came in because they're using it and they want to add in a little bit here and there. And then they they end up getting trapped. And uh, the sort of like collective blob of the Benthos open source community just sort of swallows them up and they, they end up doing stupid things like spending their spare time answering questions in the Discord channel. It's something that you kind of encourage by just trying to make it fun to be part of the community, but hopefully it's just this continuing organic growth thing where you know people kind of enjoy spending their time here and then you benefit from them wasting their time. Uh, cool. You mentioned the Discord, so I think this is a good opportunity to ask, all right, I'm interested. How do I get in touch both like just with the project at large and with you both personally? There's a couple options. You're not stuck with Discord if you hate Discord. Uh, if you go to benthos.dev slash community, there's um, there's a couple options there. But the Discord's the best one. There's, there's a, We've got a Slack on the um, a Slack channel on the Golang Slack org. And that's fairly active. But the, the main one is the Discord because at the end of the day, the Discord is where the emojis are. Mm-hmm. The Discord is where the, the funny gifts are. I thought and you'd go for boring and use IRC. We're not doing IRC, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're just not doing it. We get lost. The, the, the but, project has a bit too much of a pizzazz and, and style. If you see, yeah. if you see, uh, by the way, Ash's videos on YouTube, like the, the tutorial, I really like it because it's like foo and bar, but sort of, uh, you know, millennial uh, deep fried humor foo and bar. Like all the examples are just <laughs> slightly, you're like, wait, what did he just say? You're trying to focus on the Yamelis writing and then he's like, yeah, eating cats into the Kafka or something like that. I like to get meows in there. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I Meow, meow, meow. The George is naughty example is amazing. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple examples in there where I'm just, I, I, yeah. I'll leave it to people to discover, but there's a couple uh, nuggets of truth in the documentation that some, sometimes they're hard truths for certain people, mm-hmm. like George. So uh, we have, we'll have this link in the show notes, of course. And Mihai, how can people reach you? Uh, I'm always hanging out on the communities there. So either Discord, Slack, LinkedIn, email, you know, whichever works. You can find me. I'm, I'm all over the place. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're coming to a close here. And as we promised, we're going to ask you our usual stumper questions. 
Gun to your head. You have to remove a feature from Go. What's getting out? What's getting deleted? Um, sync map. I've seen so many people like reach out to it immediately and like, I must use this. And I'm like, no, because like it doesn't support generics and it's like kind of a niche thing and it's hard to use right. Don't do that. Use a map and a lock. I thought you were going to go the other way around and say like use a third party multiprocessing library. Or that. Or that. <laughs> oh, cool. I think you're the first one who, t- who took a shot at sync. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, and the other way around, you're looking around at all the other languages, all the other libraries, everything out there. What are you stealing into Go? Oh, that's a hard one. I kind of like Go as is right now. I'm just, I guess I'm not coding enough to like really feel the pain of like, I, I don't have this feature or that feature. So I'm, I'm really struggling for that. I might let Ash chime in there. What are you picking, Ash? Can I go with my take thing thing out first? Because yeah. I've got a bit of a system here that I need to I need to go through. So the thing that I'm going to remove is Go generics, and it's got nothing to do with whether or not I like them or use them. I just I really enjoyed the bloodbath of people arguing whether it should or shouldn't be part <laughs> of the language, and it's sad now that that's kind of over. And there's there's no drama anymore. So if we remove it, then we're not saying we can't ever add it again. We basically just restart the discussion and everybody gets mad and angry and bitter. And then the idea is that you leave that. We reinvigorate the fight. We we enjoy watching from the sidelines. But then ultimately, we do have to re-add Go uh, generics because I do actually want to use them. So that's <laughs> that's my answer. We remove we remove generics. Big announcement post. Sorry, we got it wrong. Go Go team signed off. Uh, we removing generics everybody gets really mad and then you start trickling through some hope for the generics users you say like oh we're actually reconsidering adding generics again and then everybody's like no no you can't do that you can't do that <laughs> watch watch the firefight start again yeah so basically Michai, you want to remove generics and not add anything and ash you don't want to remove anything you want to get the drama from rust <laughs> so, so if we combine both of your answers we remove generics and add drama well, there's already enough drama there to go around <laughs> yeah well maybe they can let us borrow some gross don't do that again <laughs> all right well Mihai ash this has been super interesting uh if you want to contribute to benthos or i think just use it i guess that's the best way to contribute it just Pick it up and use it. Should be super easy, super boring. Just like this uh, interview was probably for you. Uh, just deploy <laughs> it. Put it on in the background while you do dishes, and you should be good. And again, thanks a lot, Michai. Thanks a lot, Ash, for uh, jumping on. It was super insightful. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for joining. It was a lot of fun. Bye bye. <laughs>